We are in the gospel according to John chapter 13. I will read our scripture reading. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel account. One gospel, his name is Jesus. There are Bibles in the back. Um, if you don't have one, take one. If not, when I dismiss the kids, you go back there and grab one um, in just a moment. So, Gospel according to John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. When he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what, am I, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put the outer garments back on and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me Lord, excuse me, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking, excuse me, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen but that the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's a quote of scripture, Old Testament. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. I am, ego am I, everlasting, eternal. Verse 20 to close. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. John chapter 13. Children, you're dismissed for Children's Church. Age appropriate teaching of the gospel. Bless you and the teachers as you go and learn more about Jesus. Love Jesus. So we're in John 13. John 13 opens up for us. The second major section of this just beautiful account of the perfect life, the atoning death, and glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. The eternal word, John tells us in John 1, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have seen, we have been, and we have received grace upon grace. It doesn't get any better than that. Grace upon grace. Last week, we ended the first section. The first section, if you remember, is developed around seven signs, seven miraculous events that point to the person in the work of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of John. That's the purpose he wrote this letter. It is done in the open publicly as demonstrating who Jesus was. And what we saw was that the Jewish people, as time went on, got harder and harder hearts toward the Lord. They were, their minds became darker and darker, and they set out, to do one thing in the end was just to put Jesus to death. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. And really that's no different for anyone who wants nothing to do with the Lordship of Christ, not just the Jewish people. It's for us as well. When we do not bow our knee and our hearts to Christ and all that he is as Lord and Savior and King of Kings and Lord of Lions, Lord of Lords, we too have dark hearts, dark minds and hard hearts. May that not be anyone in this room. This morning, that your heart would be soft and open to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why, though, last week we saw 
that the ministry of Jesus in the first section came to a close as he made his final earthly appeal to the Jewish nations. Chapter 12 and following uh, verses uh, 23 and following, he made his last public address, his public appeal to the Jewish nation, at least the earthly appeal. Jesus loves the Jewish nation. Jesus loves the Jewish nation. Jesus loves all nations, all people, all tongues, all tribes. Jesus loves people here in America, people right here in Glenmont, people right here in this room. Jesus loved those who live in Iraq and Afghanistan, all over the world, all people, nations, and tongues. But unfortunately, many as the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people of that day, if you look at chapter 12, verse 43, People love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And that was the hardening of their hearts. That was the hardening and and darkening of their minds. That they would love glory that comes from each other rather than the glory that comes from, from God. And we saw how this last appeal to the Jewish nation and the darkness that's overcome them has been an open door to the Gentiles. We read that in Romans 9 through 11. And to the world, the door of salvation has been opened. Chapter 12 opens, chapter 13 begins with the second major section. Because now, as the pages turn from 12 to 13, we are in the last few and final days of the ministry of Jesus Christ. In chapters 13 through 17, what we see is Jesus' final discourse, his final farewell with his disciples. And then in chapter 18 through 20, it, it is his pass, uh, excuse me, the, the passion narrative which describes his trial, his false trial, his his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. So in order to put this book in perspective, chapters 1 through 12 is approximately three years. Chapters 1 through 12, approximately three years. Chapters 13 through, only through chapter 20, verse 25, is three days. It's because the Gospels were not written as a biography, as we would know biographies. The gospel doesn't give us all the accounts of Jesus' life as biographies maybe you have read. In ancient times, it was particular to a certain purpose and reason. And we know John wrote this tale of Jesus' life because he wanted to point us to the truth of the gospel. So we don't hear much about Jesus' young childhood. The toddler years of Jesus is not important. It's not the point. The revelation of who he is is the point. And that's why John wrote his gospel account, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. We are now in the upper room. We're, we're, we turn the page. The, the section's opened up and it's sundown. It's Thursday. It's the beginning of the Passover feast, chapter 13, verse 1. The time when the Jewish people people came to Jerusalem as one of the mandatory feasts to remember the lamb that was slain on the night of the exodus, their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. The night God's justice came down on Egypt and all those who took shelter under the blood of the substitute, the blood of the lamb were saved as the angel of death passed over their home. And now this evening, as disciples celebrate this Passover, the true and better lamb of God is right before them. This farewell address that we start in chapter 13, verses, verse 1, will go all the way through 1633. In John 17, we see the high priestly prayer of Jesus, where Jesus is reporting to the Father, I've done all that I've done to glorify your name. Glorify me, and now I'm sending my disciples out into this world for a mission to be accomplished. It's that backdrop few days. John is the only one that has so much of what's going on in this upper room. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospel, similar gospel, has something about this account. Only John gives us five chapters worth of the upper room. Beautiful, beautiful story and narrative of this final discourse. So here's our outline. First, the extent of his love. John 13, 1 through 3 will open up and give you kind of an overview. And I think, I think it gives us a thrust. It gives us a backdrop of what lies ahead in the rest of the upper room discourse. The extent of his love. Number two, the expression of his love. We'll see the illustration that Jesus will work out this parable uh, that he's trying to show them and actually wash the feet of the disciples and see this expression of his love. And then he'll sit down and explain to them and to us 
about his love. The extent, the expression, the explanation of his love. Let's jump right into the upper room. Thursday evening, sun's going down, and John just wants us to have a backdrop. And he says, now, before the feast of the Passover... Jesus knew that his hour had come. The hour we know is his crucifixion. We see that in chapter 12, verse 24 and verse 32. The hour has come. He'll be hoisted, lifted up on the cross. It's talking about his death had come. He is to depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. He loved his own. You know, John 1, 12 says that John 1, 11 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. So who's his own that he's talking about here? Jesus is making it clear that in light of the rejection of Israel, we have to see this passage as their rejection and his new messianic community being drawn in. In context, he's talking about the 12 that are before him. He's going to love them. He's going to show them his love to the very end. He's gathered this new messianic community and and is going to love them and instruct them to, to be unified and to love one another. And that when we are unified and we love one another, we will show the world that we are disciples and that we are the ones sent into the world to declare and demonstrate the gospel. He loved them. He loved his own. John 10, 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. In larger context, it's not just his disciples whom he is showing this love to, this special love to. It is all of us who are his children. Again, the focus is is preparing, this backdrop of preparing this messianic community and and the rejection of Israel and this new community is gathering together this spirit-empowered community that's going to be on mission to preach the gospel to the world. Therefore, his disciples, includes you and me, must be drawn in to the love and the mission of the Father who sent the Son who sends us before we could go out. We have to be brought in. And Jesus just wants to bring his disciples in and show them how much he loves them. The hour has come. It is over. It's just a matter of time where he'll be handed over to the chief priests and the Pharisees and, and he will be crucified. And now God says, he loves them. I love you. I love my own. I love you till the very end. This in no way, in any way, shape, or form says that God doesn't love everybody else. John 3.16 is pretty clear. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We love a lot of things, don't we? If any of you guys are Facebook friends with me, you know that I love to cook. Some of you responded, and I'm coming right over. Some of you love your football teams, and you love it when your team wins and your friends' teams lose. We have to love. We can love raviolis. We can love our football teams. We are called to love our neighbors. But there's a difference between loving our neighbors and loving to cook and loving our football than loving our wife, our husbands. That's a unique, special love. That's a unique, special love. Jesus saying, I love my own. Having loved his own. He's talking about those whom whom the Father will give him, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me and I will never cast them out. I am the good shepherd, John 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You see, in John 1, 11, it says his own knew him not, but if you read on, it says that those who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of men, but born of God, it's those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. To those, he gave the right to become children of God. It is those that will never be plucked out of Christ's hand. The ones who are called out of the world that will soon be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at a Pentecost. He loved them to the end. Mark that in your Bible, family. You belong to Jesus. You are loved to the end. 
to the utmost, not just his last dying breath as he hangs on the cross and gives out his spirit. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, and he breathes his last. But it is a continual, ongoing, everlasting love in which he loves us. His love will never end. An old uh, hymn writer, Frederick Martin uh, Lehman wrote this in his wonderful hymn, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bound down with care. God gave his son to win his erring child. He reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. God will love you in the gospel forever and ever and ever. Revel in that love. Don't take it for granted. Wake up. His mercies are new every day. He loves you. He loves you in Christ He loves you and he will always, always love you. I don't think they understood. I don't think when this was going on at the moment, they understood. It says, Peter, you will understand later. I don't think they understood completely the selfless humility of love. But family, they will need to. You and I will need to because we have to understand that only humble people grow in love. Only humble people can learn and grow in love. Why? Because love, true love, sacrifices for the good of others. And here we see the Messiah this, accepts the role of this lowly slave for the good of others. You see, when you're wrapped up in yourself, you truly can't love others. There's this false kind of love that permeates today. I think there's, a, there's this humanistic view that there's this, there's this idea of choosing who you want to love and who you won't love. Then there's also a motivation of really self and, and self-ego, which is not true biblical love, where you love so that you feel good about yourself. Believers are commanded to love everyone without any concern of rep, uh, reciprocating benefit. It, in the truest form, it is completely unselfish. It's not interested in personal gain. It's not concerned about personal ego or personal fulfillment, personal satisfaction. It is interested in that in other people. The, the joy and the satisfaction and fulfillment of others at any cost, that's love. Paul said it, love seeks not its own. Well, how does God love us? Uh, it begins with, with Christ. It begins with his humiliation, his deceleration, his condensation, uh, excuse me, his condescension. Verse two, during supper, the meal has already begun, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas to betray him. Verse three, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all the things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God. Now stop for a minute. We're gonna learn more about Simon Peter next week. But why would John talk about this love that God has for his people to the uttermost, speak about Judas, and then go back and speak about the deity, authority of Christ? The absolute eternal nature came from God, going back to God. Why? Jesus knew that he was about to depart. Jesus knew that everything belonged to his father. What John is showing us here, I think, is is the the utmost contrast between the work of the enemy, the work of darkness, the work of pride, and versus that great humiliation of Christ. And right in there, he just throws, just begins to, to, and starts with, with Judas to show us the contrast. This glorious contrast of the one who comes from glory, steps down on Thursday night and stoops lower and gets on his hands and knees and washes dirty feet. Even though God has given all things into his hands, even though he came from God and going back to God. Here we have the ultimate humility and the ultimate darkness. Satan enter into Judas. We know what Satan's all about. Isaiah tells us in one chapter 14, Isaiah It says, I will, Satan speaking, I will ascend to heaven above the stars. I will set my throne 
on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. A lot of eyes there, huh? Contrast that with the infinite humiliation of Christ, Philippians chapter 2. Who, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, cling to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Satan desperately reaching Jesus Christ in humility, stepping down. Jesus emptying himself while Satan is reaching for something he can never have. And John wants to see this, us to see this very important truth as we move into the next section. The Father had given all things into his hands. It speaks of the authority of Jesus. He had come from God. It speaks of his divine origin. He's going back to God. It speaks of his returning and future glory. And that he loved his own to the very end. If you don't grasp that, if you don't see that, if you don't see the beauty of his humiliation in the incarnation, in the substitutionary death on the cross as an expression of eternal love for you, you will not be able to understand the rest of this chapter and the rest of of John. But when you do, when you see the gospel, when you see the truth of what Christ has done for you, you see that this Washing of the feet, we'll look at in a second, is not simply an example. It is, it is the gospel. It is God, through John, trying to press in the truth of the gospel in your life for a reason. And that is to show us what love really is. So we have the extent. We see the beauty of Christ. We see the darkness of Judas and Satan. We see that just the expression, the extent that God will love us to the end. Now look at the expression, verse 4. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. That, that, that's that's uh, the mark of a slave. When he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. All things, sovereign Lord, takes the place of a slave. All things, given into the hands, it says, of Jesus. The Father's given him his hands, into his hands all things, the same hands that gets the water pot and pours it into a basin. Colossians 1.16, For by him, Jesus, all things were created. Heaven and earth, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And here the creator has gotten on his knees to wash the disciples' feet. And what most commentators agree on, which I do as well, is that when this was going on, Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 22, gives us a little more insight into what's going on with this rising from dinner. Luke writes, at the same time, during the upper room, during the discourse, during the Passover, this is what Luke writes, chapter 22, verse 24, in the upper room. Luke says, a dispute also arose among them, the twelve, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine? I'm better than you. No, you're, no, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm greater than you. You're lower. You know what? No, I'm better than all of you. Can you imagine Jesus sitting at this table? And not to be sacrilegious, but I'd want to slap him. But I'm just saying. I'm greater. No, I'm not. Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over, those, over them who are called benefactors. But not with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and as a leader, as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? He answers the question. Jesus says, it is not the one who reclines at the table. I am among you as the one who serves. And you could see and then get up. Arise from supper. Get the basin and the towel. You see, it was in this competitive attitude, this, this prideful spirit that Jesus rises from dinner, takes the outer garment off, puts the towel around his waist, as I said, as a slave, begins to wash their feet with a towel. A couple of things culturally. 
Number one, when you visited homes in that day, in that region, when you visited home, usually there was a pot of water out by the front door because you weren't coming to the house. Remember, they wore sandals, all right? There was a lot of dirt on the roads, and they walked everywhere they went, and you had dirty feet just from walking. So when you come to someone's house, the first thing you would do is wash your feet before you walk in and drag mud into the house. Some of you in your own home right now, you have people like, stop, take your shoes off, and they got to take their shoes before they come in. Sometimes a couple minutes later, you wish you hadn't done that, but <laughs> you'll get that. But that's what they did. The job was given to slaves, the lowliest slave. Peers did, not watch each other, peers did not wash each other's feet. Even disciples who were connected to a certain rabbi, as he learned from that rabbi, didn't wash the rabbi's feet. It was below them. And here the creator of the world is washing the feet of its creation. Wrapped in a towel, again, indicating he's, he, he's doing something a slave would do. Now also remember, when you went to eat in someone's home in that day, you didn't sit around a kitchen table with your feet under the table. You laid down. You see that famous picture of the 12 disciples uh, eating the supper with Jesus at the last supper, that big table. It's wrong. It, it was, it, it's, it, that's not what happened. They would lay down. Food would be on the floor, maybe a lower table. They would lay down their, on their elbow, right hand ready, dipping in food and eating together. Feet on the same level as the food. You get my drift. Also in that day, when you went to a house to eat, you didn't wait till the meal was started and beginning and you're halfway through it. You washed your feet when you got there. The meal, it tells us, has already began. Not one single disciple went to wash even Jesus' feet. Never mind one another. Jesus, looking at his men, who are arguing about the greatest, realizes and understand no one, we're eating already, no one washed anyone's feet, probably because no one wanted to dare, you know, look too low and wash other people's feet. Nobody else would do and what no one else would do, Jesus gets up and does. The perfect one, the holy one, in the midst of dinner, no one has done anything and begins to wash their feet. Peter, right on cue, is the leader, loves to stick his foot in his mouth, dirty as it may be, speaks up. And Peter says, flabbergasted, verse 6. He comes to Simon Peter. Now, we don't know how many he's done so far. And Peter says to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Yeah, yeah. What I'm doing, you won't understand, but someday you will. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, that may seem like, listen, Peter, if you don't let me do your feet, you're going to hell. I want nothing to do with you. That's not what it means. Look at verse 9. Simon Peter's like, okay, if I don't let you wash my feet, I don't have no part with you and no share with you. Okay, how about a bath? Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Weird, right? Like, listen, if, if I'm missing out on something, just bathe me. Now, again, before we beat up Peter too much, I, I think what Peter's experiencing was a, a slow recognition of who Jesus really was. We see that as, as, as the ministry is coming to the close. Jesus already said in John 6, you, Lord, and you alone have the words of eternal life, and we believe that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter will go on to say, depart from me, O Lord, I am a sinful man. Jesus, Jesus reminded Peter how sinful was he was when he said, get behind me, Satan. So Peter's trying to make sense of all this. I'm, I'm, I, if, I don't wa- if I don't let you wash my feet, but I can't let you wash your feet. Lord, that can't happen. I'm a sinful man. I'm dumbfounded. I don't know. This can't be. And Jesus said to him in verse 10, the one who has bathed, like Peter, I'm not giving you a bath. That's just too stinking weird, okay? The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. But is what? Completely clean. And you, plural, everyone in the room, you are clean, but not every one of you. You see that? But not every one of you is clean. For he knew, verse 11, who was to betray him. The one who bathes does not need to wash. Every time your feet get dirty, Peter, you don't need a bath. Nope, you just need your feet 
to be washed. But you, Peter, you bathed, therefore you are clean. What does that mean? What do you mean, Peter, you're clean? You see, all throughout the Old Testament and embedded in Jewish thought, culture, is that dirt, hands, feet, pots that they would pour water in the temple, was a, a, a symbolic of sin. And that's why you have all these cleansings and washings and ablutions in the Old Testament is to remind the people that we've all been defiled. We all have sin. And there's all these washings appointed to the defilement of sin. We needed to be washed and cleansed. In 1 Corinthians, we saw the verse while we were singing. Chapter 6, Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul says to the church, here's a list of all these sinful uh, um, um, lifestyles in which you were living, but you're not living that anymore. And all of us find ourselves in one of those lifestyles. And you know what? It says in verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 11 of 1 Corinthians, and such were some of you. In other words, you lived that lifestyle, but now you were washed. You lived this way, you were running this way, you were doing that, and now you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of God. Hebrews chapter 9 says that Jesus entered into the holy place once and for all into the holy of holies, where the Shekinah glory is, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And by dying on the cross, it says he secured an eternal redemption, and that the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Peter, Peter, you're clean. Peter, you are clean, completely clean. You just need your feet to be washed. Jesus is anticipating the old covenant temporary cleansing being replaced and fulfilled through the sacrifice that he will offer the very next day. Jesus is not referring to the foot washing per se right here, but to the passion to which the foot washing points to, his atoning death on the cross. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. That's true for every Christian. Unless the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, washes you, you have no part with him. Peter, you're clean. Judas, you're not. Right? That's what he's saying. The cleansing foreshadowed here as he washed their feet, he looked ahead to the gruesome humiliation and cruel crucifixion. He is about to take place. You need to see that. Unless I wash you, you have no part. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And the verb bathe, it says, uh, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, is in the perfect tense, which means it is settled once and for all. So when God bathes you in the blood of Jesus, when you come to faith in him in the moment of your salvation, you're in union with Christ, forgiven, cleansed. It is a settled relationship that can never change. You're clean, Peter, but come, let me wash your feet. Now, we could say, well, it's just an example of humility. I don't believe so. You're clean, but you need your feet washed. What does that mean? Well, John, the writer, will write in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 9, what he means. He writes in 1 John 1, 9, if we, we Christians, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, who's John talking to? We. What we have heard, we proclaim to you, children of God. First John 1, 9, two verses later, it says, I'm writing this to you, my little children. He's talking about believers who have been bathed, who've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, justified, having been regenerated, who picks up dust on their feet as they go about this broken world. And we as children of God, cleansed in the blood of Jesus, we are now coming back, 
confessing our sins, repenting of our sins on a regular basis, called communion. We call the church to repentance and being cleansed of sin. Jesus is telling Peter that he does not need to be regenerated. Again, he does not to be born again over and over again. But as regenerated people who have been bathed in the blood of Jesus, we need our feet washed from time to time. This, this acted out parable takes the common experience, washing of the feet, bathing, in a, in a, bathing oneself and washing one's feet, and comes alongside spiritual truth. That's what parables are. And Jesus is trying to say, listen, the person who's been cleansed and washed and bathed is basically clean, but we've got to come back to Christ. We've got to come back continually repenting of our sin and trusting in Christ, believing on him, and receiving our cleansing day by day. The problem that some people face and some false teachings that have gone forward is there's a difference there. They don't differentiate between our position in Christ, the cleansing power, and the process of becoming more like Jesus. They, get the diff- they, they, they can't differentiate between our status as children of God and the sanctifying work of the work of the gospel in our lives, becoming more like Jesus. And they say, well, you don't need to repent. You don't need forgiveness. You do. That's why John wrote that letter, 1 John 1, 9, to us. Because even though we are positionally in Christ, even though we are union with Christ, even though our status is blood-bought children of God, we as Christians don't stop sinning. And if you think you have, you just lied. There's a sin. I'll show you one. But our union will never change. But our communion with God, and if you've ever sinned against God, and I'm not talking about just today, because most of us did already on the way in, the communion with God, the renewal of our communion with him as we confess our sins, repent of our sins, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sins. Whether it's known sin, let me, let me, I said this to the first service too. It's not in my notes, but I just want to remind everybody. When we talk about defilement of sin, we talk about known sin that you do and I do, Times in which we rebel against God, we do what we want to do. Our motives aren't perfect. We are imperfect people and we sin and we need to have our feet washed by Jesus and let him do it. But there's also a sin of defilement that you may feel when someone sins against you. You hear that all the time. Who have been hurt deeply and sinned against you. You're clean too. It's not only sins that you have done, it's sins that have done against you. And the Bible says that you have been cleansed. You've been washed by the blood of Jesus. You only need your feet washed from time and time again. He says all of you are clean but one. is the contrast between the disciples who've been bathed in the blood of Jesus in the foreshadowing of the cross and Judas who is outside the sheepfold doesn't belong to him. Disciples need cleansing. And then we see that in the departure as well of Judas. So, Jesus Christ, creator, takes on the role of a slave, washes sinful creation, comes down from heaven's glory, takes on humanity, walks this broken world, gets on his knees, acts like a slave, towel, and washes the feet, the feet of his disciples. If that's not mind-blowing enough, who's in that crowd with him? Judas. The betrayer. Imagine you have a friend, a close friend. For three years you fed, loved, invested in, taught scriptures to, prayed with, never sinned against, and he despised you. He handed you over to be murdered. And you decide, you know what? I'm going to be murdered tomorrow and this man is going to turn me over to them. I think I'll start washing his feet first as I drown him in the basin. (laughs) Not Jesus. Jesus shares a meal with him. Jesus washes his feet. The humility of Christ is beyond comprehension. The expression of his love, the extent of his love, the expression of his love, and look at the explanation, verse 12. When he had washed their feet put on his outer garments, and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Mark that in your Bible. One another's feet. Oh, I can go down to the shelter. Oh, I can go into the hospital. 
I'm going to discriminate. Those people need one another's feet. Look around. That's what he's talking about. That's humbling enough. One another's feet. Now, the implication, of course, is the world, but one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also, verse 15, do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant not greater than his master, nor his messenger greater than the one who sent him. Arguments from what they call greater to the lesser, completely countercultural, both in that day and today. In that day, Romans had no use for humility. Greeks were, were totally against manual labor. The greater to the lesser. So let me ask, family. Does your attitude, does my attitude, reflect that kind of humble service? Does my actions, does my action, does your actions reflect that kind of humble service? Hmm. Are those under your care in your home, at your job, in your school, maybe serving on a board some, for some organization, do they see you as a humble servant of others? I get he's talking to the 12. I understand that he's, he's calling his leaders particularly to be servant-like, servant-loving leaders. But aren't we all leadership in one way or the other? Mom, dad, band member, church, little church, pastors, myself, pastors in process. We have two going on right now, Bill Skiff and Chris Cajano, deacons, school teachers. On and on and on it goes. There are many ways that we could show love toward other people. Maybe a neighbor who needs a ride or maybe someone's car that broke down. You'll get up extra early and stay extra late. Maybe a student in school that no one loves and no one cares for and everyone's dismissing but you come alongside them and take on the shame uh, that will bring upon you by your peers. Maybe to someone you need to share a meal with. Yeah, it'll put you out, money, time. Maybe that really hard to get along with neighbor. Don't raise your hand. And, and, and I mentioned this too. Um, we don't love people. I don't believe, I, I believe the scripture teaches us that we are to love people all the time. I don't believe in this bait and switch kind of love. I'm going to love you, I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to tell you about Jesus, and, and you know what, you want nothing to do with him, so I want nothing to do with you. That's not biblical love. Biblical love serves. He washed Judas' feet. I'd drown him. But he was watching his feet. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But you know, when we see that, when we see the love of God, even when we, I mean, how much did God love you before you came to faith? He kept pursuing you. Let me tell you, he kept loving you. It's about him, not about us. It's not about our glory. It's not about us getting a pat on the back. It's about the glory of God. Genuine love, biblical love, cares not for one's ego and cares only for the glory of God. The late Andrew Murray said this, people sometimes speak of humility and meekness as something that would rob us of what is noble and bold. Oh, he says, that all would realize that this is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven, that this is the royal spirit that the king of heaven displayed, that this, he's talking about this kind of love, is a godlike to humble oneself and to become the servant of all. This is the path to gladness and the glory of Christ's presence in us, of his power resting on us. And he finishes and says, true humility comes when, in the light of God, in light of the gospel, We have seen ourselves to be nothing, have consented to be part with and cast away self to let God be all in all, end quote. How do we do that? How do we truly serve, love, humble ourselves, giving God glory? How do we do that? Look at verse 17. If you know these things, all right, I'm teaching the Lord, serve, serve, humble oneself. If you know these things, blessed are you if you know them. Doesn't say that, does it? Blessed are the if you do them. Do them. James, don't be hearers of the word alone, but be doers of the word. Blessed are you. You know what the word blessed means? If you got happy in your Bible, I don't like that translation. Some people translate it happy. 
Uh, the Greek word makaros uh, is, is not really happy. Happy is about happening, happenstance. That's where happiness comes in. Hap uh, has to do with chance. So, you know, my happiness is based on things going around with me. It's contingent upon my circumstances. If things are going well, I'm happy. If things in my life are going down like in flames, I'm not very happy. And some people, blessedness means that they are happy with themselves and their circumstances. Or maybe they're happy because of the, of the uh, possessions, the beauty, the attractiveness that they have, or vocational success, business, whatever it is. True biblical blessedness at its heart is based on objective truth. That joy, that, that brings a joy that transcends circumstances. Jesus is not talking about happy in your circumstances. Blessed are you. And let me tell you, serving humbly, loving others takes time and energy. But he says, blessed are you, joyful are you. Because the word blessed means, scripturally, it's blessedness scripturally is the inner joy the serenity, peace, the satisfaction, the inner satisfaction, and composure that comes when we are right with God. When, when we know that we are loved by God. When we know that we've been accepted by God. When we know that our sins are forgiven. That we are in His hands. It's not contentment in happenstance. It's contentment in God's providence and His love for us. That's blessedness Jesus rises from supper they would soon realize that he would that he had rose from the place of the father and came down to this jacked up world Jesus laid aside his outer garments as he takes on humanity Jesus wraps himself around with a towel and becomes a servant. Jesus poured water in the basin. They will realize that Jesus poured out his blood. Jesus washed the disciples' feet just as he would cleanse them from their sins. Jesus rose from the cleansing and rose up and went and sat back down, just like Hebrews says, after making purification of sins. He sat down, Jesus, at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now let me bring this full circle. In verse 17, when it says, blessed are you, that's the key. The joy of knowing the gospel, the joy of forgiveness of sins, makes us blessed and propels us to do the things that God would want us to do. To love sacrificially, unselfishly, selflessly, humbly, without any personal gain, without any Motive of personal uh, satisfaction, but completely committed to the well-being and joy and satisfaction and, and fulfillment of others. How? Through the gospel. Through the gospel, knowing that Christ has died for you. And family, I, I want you to see this as we close. When you and I, when, when Jesus is our greatest treasure... When we can lay aside all earthly treasures, the pursuit of power and prestige and material wealth, then we could serve others with pure motives. That's the difference between Christians who love others and the world who loves others. On the outside, it may seem the same, but on the inside, the believer is so secured, loved, satisfied in Christ that they want to give him all the glory compared to those who do things so that they can get this. Even if you can't see it. Even with me here right now, you don't know my heart. But God has called me to love and not to get self-fulfillment, but to love you so that you see him. When you see his glory, when you see his incalculable worth, then we can serve others and not be concerned about ourselves. No personal gain. Some people take this narrative to mean that we need to have an ordinance or some sort of new sacrament, but that misses the point. It's not a religious duty in the sense of just doing it so we could say we did it. We washed his feet, let's move on. It is an attitude, it is a perspective of everyday life for the believer in Christ to display the glory and love that we have received in the gospel we are to give to one another, nothing in return. And that goes to verse 20. 
Because once we grasp the gospel, once we grasp all that Christ has done, once we grasp his great love for us, then we see what he did. And we're motivated by this, by the love of the gospel to do that. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. We're the ones he's sending. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. We're the ones Christ has sent. When they receive us and the gospel and the message of the gospel, they receive Christ. They not only get Christ, they get the Father. They get the Father and the Son. They're forgiven of their sins. And Jesus is so enamored by, I'm, uh, all authority has been given to me. I've come from God. I'm going back to God. All that I do is pleasing of, the God, of God. And, and that propelled him into mission. And family, I'm making an argument this morning that that's what should propel us into mission. That we understand all that Christ has done for us at that table through the gospel lens, we are going to be sent into this world loving people, loving people with nothing in return, loving people for the sake of love for the glory of God. That's what I'm saying. He says, I'm sending you. Go in that. Be that kind of people. Be those kind of heartfelt, loving, gospel-centered, glorifying God people as you go into the world. And as you go in your sentness, you will be blessed. We'll exhibit the joy of knowing God. We will, we will be glad to step down and stoop down in love from the privilege of our high standing. And some of us have roles to play. I get that. In authority, I get that. But we'll have an attitude of love, an attitude of servanthood because that's what Jesus is doing. And Jesus is saying, I'm sending my people into the world who are humbled by my love, who recognize my ultimate humility, giving of myself so that we can have life. Are you that kind of people? Are we that kind of people? That's the call of the gospel today. Recognizing all that Christ has done and allowing that to propel us to love others for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the glory of God. Let that settle into our hearts and let us be that people, salt and light to this world. Father, thank you for this glorious passage of scripture. Father, thank you for the humility of Christ. Thank you for showing us all that he had. Corinthians tells us that by his Wounds, we are healed, that we can have forgiveness of our sins and, and that through his poverty we become rich. So Father, we pray that we would be people who love Jesus, people who love others, people who are constantly pointing away from ourselves to the true King of kings, the Lord of lords, that the love of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the humility of the gospel will propel us to love people by demonstrating your love for us and by declaring clearly the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And all those who call upon him shall be saved. Let us celebrate and sing.